Good morning. Good morning. Hey, welcome everybody. I'm glad your car started this morning. You made it to church. Congratulations. It's great to have you this morning. Uh, just a quick uh, disclaimer, public service announcement this morning before we get started. I'm doing really well right now. I feel good right now. Uh, but we're talking about heaven a little bit today. And it's been a hard week. And I, I had a real hard time for service. We almost didn't make it through. Just about had to call an audible. And Steve's ready to go, right, Steve? He's ready right now. Uh, so uh, we placed, they placed Ben's tombstone this week. And then that's, that song we just sang, that was Ben's funeral song. So I feel good right now. And I'm okay. And you're okay. And we're all going to be okay. Everybody okay? Okay, here we go. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, well, I thought we've been reading the story of a man named Joseph together, and there have been a lot of incredible uh, themes in that story, but the mega theme of the story of Joseph is something called the providence of God. And what we mean when we talk about the providence of God is that God is uh, in, in sovereign control and giving directions to all things toward his ultimate purposes. We've seen that in every episode in, jo in Joseph's life. The unseen hand of providence guiding everything and forcing it to work for the good of those who are, uh, you know, called according to his purpose and who love him. And what, we've also been talking about redemption this fall. And so when we talk about redemption in that kind of a context, what we mean is the way that God sovereignly draws together every part of our lives, all of our victories and defeats and our histories and the things that we've done, the things that have been done to us. We're talking about the way that God draws all of that together and uh, forces it to do good to us. The way that God gathers up our lives into his own story and makes something amazing out of it. Uh, we've also talked this fall about the need for that doctrine, this doctrine of the providence of God and the redemption of all things to be met by us with faith. Uh, the providence of God, I could show it to you on almost every page of the Bible. I mean, it, it's taught everywhere throughout the Bible, but it must be met by faith if it is going to be real and if it's going to change us and if it's going to have power. Faith, when we use that word, is, is not an esoteric, esoteric feeling. Faith is, not an, faith is not an altered state of consciousness. Faith is not even really a religious word, okay? We put faith in things all the time. You are trusting the chair you sit in right now. All your faith is in that chair. So uh, a person who uh, believes a parachute will hold them up has doctrine. A person who jumps out of a plane has faith. Does that make sense? And Christians are called to be plane jumpers. People who really do put their weight on the things that they believe and move in response to them. So our understanding of the providence of God that I, I really do believe God is sovereign over all things and really is working all things together for good needs to be met by an act of the will that says, and therefore I will trust him. And I am going to obey and I'm going to respond to him and jump out of the plane, so to speak. Now that is especially true when you're suffering it is especially true when you cannot see the whole picture and when everything around you just looks like chaos and confusion. Faith needs to come along and say, 
Even though I cannot see everything that is happening, even though I don't understand what's happening, God has shown me enough and I'm going to trust him, okay? Now this morning we're gonna be talking about a uniquely difficult set of promises from God and they're difficult for two reasons. One of them is that they have to do with our future. We're gonna be talking today about the redemption of all things in Jesus and because it's something in the future, it depends entirely on faith. There's almost, almost nothing else I can think of in the Christian life like that. Most things in the Christian life, we're invited to look back at what God has done. We can weigh the evidence. We can look at the eyewitness accounts, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, uh, you know, there's, there's something there that we can see and touch and dig out of the dirt and things like that. But when we talk about the redemption of all things, no one's been to the future. And therefore, it is completely about faith. The second thing that makes these particular promises so difficult is that they are so great. Uh, if you slow down to really read what God has said about what is coming, the promises are so incredibly awesome that I would understand if, if they met with unbelief and a sense of that, that's a, a fairy tale. Sometimes people say religion is a crutch for weak-minded people. It's the opiate of the masses. Religion is for people who just can't handle reality and so they've created this escape hatch into another world and when things get hard, they open the hatch you know, and they escape in their fancy uh, to another world. I, I believed that at one time in my life as well when I was younger. I can only tell you now, without taking too much time this morning, that that is simply not how it is. And I would tell you from my own experience, and I, I've talked with so many uh, of you here who've experienced the same thing. When you are suffering, you are not more gullible, but less. It's when you are hurting that what is real and what is not real become the most important to your soul. Uh, I, just for my own, my own personal testimony, Darcy and I have never been as sober about reality as we are right now. So the thing about these promises that God has made is that they are, they're unbelievably awesome. The last thing I want to say about them by way of introduction is they're unbelievably powerful too. And that people who uh, take the, the doctrine we're going to talk about and meet it with faith become invincible. They become indomitable. And uh, it's good news. So this fall we've seen Joseph's life redeemed by the providence of God. His, his uh, suffering's been redeemed. We've seen his brothers have their sin redeemed by the providence of God. And there's one more character now in the story whose, whose story hasn't quite come full circle, and that's their father, Jacob. That's what we're going to be talking about basically for the rest of this series all the way to Christmas. So let's turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 45 this morning. That'll be on page 39 if you want to borrow a Bible from one of the chairs in front of you. While you're turning there, Joseph, uh, Jacob's a pretty new story to the, to, pretty new character to the story. Excuse me. So, just in case you're you're brand new to Genesis or just need a refresher this morning, 
Here are a few things you need to know about Jacob as we get started. Jacob was the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. So that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the three great fathers of the Jewish and Christian faiths. And what you need to know is that Jacob was a fighter. Jacob fought with everyone. He wanted position and status and material possession and blessing and vindication. He wanted the affection of others, and so he fought. People have not changed in 4,000 years. Even in the womb, Jacob fought with his twin brother. He came out clutching Esau's heel like he was going to pull him back into the womb and beat him out or something like that. So that's where his name actually comes from. Jacob means the grasper. And that defined his whole life, especially his early life. When Jacob didn't get what he wanted, he would lie and cheat and steal if he couldn't get it by force. So Jacob's name also came to be synonymous with deceit and trickery. And the saddest thing about Jacob's life is that God had already promised everything that Jacob was after. So even before he was born, God made a promise to his mother that Jacob would have all these things he was fighting for. But Jacob just could not trust God. We, we call it unbelief. It's a, a decision or an inability to not trust what God has said and act on it. That was always the root issue with him. And some of us know that personally. I mean, for some of us, you know, we just have a story of wrestling with belief. I have a couple of brothers like that. I don't know if it's just, you know, personalities or family histories or whatever it is, but sometimes faith is harder. Now, last week, Pat mentioned that God never appeared to Joseph. I'd never noticed that before. God never appeared to Joseph. God revealed himself to Joseph by the unseen hand of providence. At each step of the way, he was with Joseph. But Jacob, his dad, had several powerful personal encounters with God. They're some of the most famous stories in the book of Genesis. I want to just share one with you, okay? I want to share one appearance of God to Joseph, and I've chosen this one because it's the closest chronologically to the Joseph story. It's in Genesis chapter 35, okay? So you got your Bible open. Take a look at chapter 35. That's on page 29 if you want to borrow a Bible. This is the third or fourth time God has appeared to Jacob, and I want you to just hear the language of God's blessing. Chapter 35, verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Israel means wrestles with God. Okay, so that's Jacob's official covenant name is the wrestler. So he called his name Israel. Verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. So that's the original blessing, way back to chapter one. This is the blessing of Eden, and now it's being given to Jacob. And God says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And God went up from Jacob in the place where he had spoken with him. So these are typical of God's promises to Jacob all the way through his life. 
Uh, I'm going to bless you with the blessing of Eden. I'm going to make you a great nation. Kings are going to come from your family. And the land that I promised your fathers, I'm promising to you. He also usually adds, and I will be with you. It's not in this one, but that's usually added as well. So here's another amazing encounter with God. And an amazing set of promises. And if you have your Bible open, you can look down the page, and the very next thing that happens is that Jacob's beloved, his wife Rachel, who he worked 14 years to marry, dies giving birth to their youngest son. And then the very next thing that happens is that Reuben, his firstborn, his oldest, the one who should have inherited this blessing that's come from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob should have gone to Reuben. Reuben has an affair with one of Jacob's wives. He sleeps with his stepmother. Even in the U.S., that's kind of weird. And then the, very next, and then the next thing that happens is his dad dies. This is in like 10 verses. Boom, boom, boom. Jacob's life implodes on him. I just share all that to say, is it any wonder... But sometimes it is hard to believe God. Is it any wonder that faith sometimes is a struggle? Like how would, if you're Jacob, how do you process all of that? And then the next story in Jacob's life is his ten oldest boys coming to him with the bloody and tattered cloak of his favorite son, Joseph, to tell him that his son is dead. Now, I don't, know that, I don't think we can know this for sure, okay? But there is a consensus out there that what's going on with Joseph's coat, you remember if you've seen, you know, the, the play or the movie or anything, Jacob gave this beautiful coat to Joseph. And what's going on there is probably more than just favoritism. It's a symbol or a sign that, that for Jacob, Joseph is the new heir to the promise. Okay, Reuben is disqualified because he's a putz. Simeon, the next in line, is this bloody-minded, violent, crazy person. And Judah, you can read about Judah in chapter 38. He's, he's got real problems. And so as far as Jacob is concerned, Joseph is the man. And what's happening there is more than the loss of a favored son. But as I think as far as Jacob is concerned, the promise has failed. The son is dead. And God lied. And if you just read through the story, the wind kind of goes out of the fighter. The fight is gone. He says in chapter 37, verse 5, there is no comfort for this. There is no answer. I'm going to the grave in mourning. And all I want to show you today is that God always keeps. He always keeps his promises. And that neither life nor death, neither angels nor rulers, neither things present nor the future, neither separation nor slavery nor sin nor stupidity, there is nothing in all creation that will thwart God when he's decided to do something. So our scripture reading today is in Genesis chapter 45, verse 25. We're just picking up where we left off last week, okay? And here's what it says. So the brothers went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What follows, if you have your Bibles open, is a long list of Jacob's children and grandchildren, which we're not going to take time to read this morning, but I do want to finish with verses 26 and 27. It says this, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came into Egypt, were 70. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. I want to look at three things. God always keeps his promises. He cares for you. And his promises are always better than you think. And we're actually going to start at the bottom of what we just read and work our way back up. Okay? So if you look at those last two verses, it says all the people belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were this many. And then there was, Joseph was already there with his kids. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were how many? Seventy. Good job. You guys are awake. We said a few weeks ago that Genesis is a very tightly knit highly structured historical narrative. And everything that the author chooses to include, he does so on purpose. So here's this long genealogy, a long list of names, and we find out at the end that there were 70. Now, not just throughout the Bible, but throughout the ancient Near East, okay, everyone who read this first would have recognized this is a highly significant symbolic number representing that the family is whole. There's peace, there's perfection, and for the first time, this family really is ready to be and to do what God has called them to be and to do, okay? And what is that purpose that God created this family for? Well, this genealogy has a cousin genealogy way back in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, we're given another highly structured list of Noah's descendants and the nations that came from Noah's family. It's called the Table of Nations. And for a thousand points, can anyone guess how many nations there are there? Seventy. Seventy thousand points for you. So the whole story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is framed up on one end or both ends by these highly structured, selective genealogies with this culturally significant number of 70 to just let us know, or it's a reminder, it's like a hyperlink, to remind us that since the very beginning, God's purpose was always the salvation and the redemption of every nation and people 
on earth. That has always been the plan. It's a, it's a reminder of those deep, deep currents of God's providence that are always flowing beneath the story. So in the apparent chaos and craziness of Jacob and Joseph's lives, there has always been this one thing that God is working out. He has promised to redeem and save all the nations. Now from our chair, by the way, we, we can connect not just Genesis 10 and 46, but Genesis 10 and Revelation. So from our seat, this is Revelation 7-9. This is the end of the story, okay? It says, therefore, I, behold, I looked, and a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So through th this is the point. Through all the twists and turns of Abraham's life, and there were a lot of twists and turns, and through all the twists and turns of Isaac's life, and through all the twists and turns of Jacob's life, God kept his promise. And he did what he said he would do. And he always does what he says he's going to do. That's why this genealogy is here. And what God is going to do is always better than we think. It is always better. I don't know how often we reflect on this, but how bizarre that we're sitting in Hudson, Wisconsin, worshiping Jesus together. Have you thought about that? If, Jake, if you could tell Jacob, go back in time and tell Jacob, hey, I'm from Hudson, Wisconsin, and we worship your, you know, the king that God promised would come out of your family. We love that dude. He'd be like, I don't, well, who are you? This morning, there are Christians gathered in the United States and Canada and Brazil and Mexico and Liberia and Ghana and Ethiopia and giant soaring stone structures in Scotland and the Czech Republic and in bombed out buildings in the Ukraine and in little tiny house churches in Uzbekistan and across India and China and huge, huge mega churches in Seoul, South Korea and little villages in the Fiji Islands and in Australia. Jesus is being lifted up in the worship of his people in thousands of languages and in every imaginable circumstance. Yeah. They're worshiping the Lion of Judah together. So just imagine that conversation. You go you back, hey, hey, Jacob, I'm from the future and it's great. You wouldn't, you couldn't believe we're worshiping Jesus all over the world and there's this thing called the internet, it's amazing and we just cast it into closed countries and all this other stuff and you know, and how would you explain this? How would you explain what's going on today? Oh and by the, world, the, by the way the world is round, surprise! There's like these whole other continents you don't know anything about. God always, always keeps his word and it is always better than you think it will be. Like no one ever gets to the end of seeing the things that God has done and says, like is that it or like is there, is there like a, a, an epilogue or something, you know? Like where's the good stuff? That never ever happens. 
Second thing. So God always does what he says he's going to do. Second thing I want you to see is the care of God for Jacob in the midst of this. Look at verses 2 and 4. So this is the fourth or fifth time God has appeared to Jacob. It says that Jacob stopped in Beersheba on his way to Egypt. Beersheba is the, is the last town in the promised land. And so Jacob is at the border. He's about to leave his home. He's about to become an, an immigrant. And he's afraid. And God comes to him in the night and says, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. And he says, I am God the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. That's my favorite sentence in everything we've read today. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I'll be with you, you're going into exile, but you won't be alone. And at the end of your life, Joseph or Jacob has been fighting and fighting and fighting, and God is letting him know, at the end of your life, there will be peace, and your family will be there. And your son, Joseph, whom you love, who you thought was dead, he himself will close your eyes. And then I, God says, I will bring you home. I will bring you back to the land of your fathers. It's a promise that God is going to bring Jacob's story to an end in peace. One of the most common objections to the sovereignty of God or the doctrine of God's providence is that it reduces us to something like cogs in some great cosmic machine. But that is just not so. You cannot get there from here. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases, Psalm 115. And his eye is on the sparrow and he has numbered the hairs of your head. He collects every tear, Psalm 56. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. God is not using you he is not amused by your suffering. You are not disposable to him. But there is more going on than we can see in any given moment. Now, this, this promise that you know, Jacob's beloved son will close his eyes, that is not a promise that God has made to us, okay? God has not promised us that we're gonna go to the grave in peace, okay? But he has made other promises to us. Namely, God has promised to bring you home and that you will have everything that you need to make it. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, just as one example. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. In other words, everything your heart will need, you will have. And you will have it when you need to have it. 
Everything that your heart craves, everything that Jacob's heart craved, hope and joy and purpose and peace and significance and love and peace with God, all of those things are yours already in Jesus. And he has promised to get you home. John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up. I will get you home. You are not a cog in some machine. God always, always does what he says he's going to do. And you can trust him. Finally, what God has promised is always better. Think. Verse 26 Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. There is nothing in that sentence that is believable. There's a story that Ken Burns tells about a, um, an American POW whose parents uh, get a telegram from the War Department that their son has been killed in action, and then his uh, POW camp is uh, liberated one day. He calls home, mom picks up the phone, he says hello, and she faints. That's about the closest thing I could think of to what's going on right here. Except that those parents only, you know, they'd only been without their son for a few years, and also in that story, they never actually believed he was dead. There was, they, there was no tombstone, there was no memorial service, they had this intuition that without a body, he must still be alive. Joseph, or Jacob really believed for 20 years his son really was dead. The closest parallel has to be the resurrection of Jesus, where uh, when the disciples hear that Jesus has been raised from the dead, they respond in total disbelief. That's what's going on here. Joseph is still alive, and he happens to rule the world. Verse 26 says, Jacob's heart went numb. Just, just an ancient way of saying he went into shock. He had a heart attack or a stroke or something happened to him. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, presumably they've they had to explain what they'd done also. Dad's probably like, well, that figures. And he saw these Egyptian wagons. Joseph sent the brothers home with Egyptian wagons loaded with Egyptian treasure. When, jo when Jacob saw it, it says his spirit revived and he said, it's enough. Joseph is alive. It's fascinating to me that Joseph still has not gone up to Canaan himself. Maybe he really is just that busy saving the world but I think that God is using the wisdom of Joseph to redeem his father's unbelief. Remember, he brought his brothers through this redemptive process. Now he's doing it with his dad. Rather than just going up there himself, what Joseph does is give his dad enough. I, I just noticed this actually between the services. 
Joseph gives words and signs. That's what he sends home. Words and signs. And that is how it is. And it's enough for Jacob's faith to revive. And he says, it's enough. I'll go and see my son. There's some place where C.S. Lewis has talked about this. He says, if we could see today the things that God has promised to his people, we would die. If we could see all the ways that God is bringing together the threads of our lives and everything that he's doing with all of our history and all of our victory and all of our failure, if we could see what God is doing, the shock and awe would kill you. That's basically almost what happens to Jacob. His heart goes numb. And what we have been promised is so much greater than what Jacob experienced. This is from 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. Your heart cannot imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Romans 8.18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let me just ask you, how good will the redemption of all things have to be for you to say it was worth it because that is the promise. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with Jesus graciously give us all things? All things. You cannot lose. There is nothing you can lose in Jesus and it will all matter in the end that's the promise and he promises to get you home now what do we mean when we when we talk about home I actually do not mean heaven today we may talk more about that in some week to come but heaven is actually not the goal of redemption it is awesome but it is not home with a capital H Heaven is not the far distant country that Hebrews tells us about. Heaven is one stage in the process of our redemption. So we, you know, we live in this stage right now where it's Jacob's story and our story and the story of Jesus, okay? Heaven is another stage. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but it is not home. And the ultimate promise is that one day the veil between these two worlds will be gone. And heaven and earth will become one. There will be a new creation where God dwells among his people and all is made new and all is made right. Ephesians 1.10 says that God's purpose is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, which is Christ. No separation between that world and this any longer. Habakkuk, the prophet, says a day is coming when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. This is a famous passage from Revelation, chapter 21. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. These are just a handful. Here, here are just a few more. The, the Bible says we will reign with Christ. We will reign with him forever and ever. Second Timothy 2. There will be perfect justice, righteousness, and holiness. There will be rewards and honor for those who persevered. There will be healing. Satan and all spiritual powers of darkness will be cast into hell. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself. And on that day, there will be some things that matter. And there will be a lot of things that just don't anymore. And I know that that sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds kind of like Joseph, your son, is alive and he rules the world. God always does what he said he will do. And a new world is coming. And in that day, how you have responded to Jesus is all that will matter forever. We are not invited to believe this because it is comforting, but because it is true. And the ultimate evidence that this is going to happen, kind of like Joseph sent along the carts to convince dad, the ultimate evidence is the resurrection of Jesus. If he has been raised from the dead, then it is all going to happen, just as he said. God always keeps his word. You can trust him. And it is always better than we think. And for people who meet that doctrine with faith, there is hope, courage, vitality, and an invincible spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for the story of Jacob. And I ask God that you would press into hearts today the truth of the doctrine and that you would give them a gift of faith to respond accordingly. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing.